Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4. And locate the first verse is where we'll be starting some reading from today. 1 John chapter 4 verse 1. Before we get to that, I just kind of want to remind you or kind of point out that Last week, we closed with a passage from Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 7. It's uh, where God's writing the letters to the churches. This happens to be the church of Ephesus. And he says, I know your works, your toil, your patience, your endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are, and are not found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, that you have not grown weary but I have this against you, that you've abandoned your first love um, that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the works you did first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. In the in this letter to the church of Ephesus, one of the in the letters in the church to the churches at the beginning of Revelations, they kind of give these accommodations, these you know attaboys. God says, "Well, here's something you're doing really good," and then He goes, "But here's this other thing that you need to kind of clean up," and and that's kind of the pattern throughout those book throughout those letters. In this particular case, to the church of Ephesus, God's praising them because they they're testing false prophets. They they put false prophets, people who claim to be apostles. They put them to a test and find them to be false. And this is what he commends them from. And, and I find it interesting when we read 1 John 4, the same guy who's writing this letter and, and God kind of commending this church on their testing. Well, you have to wonder, well, where did they learn to do that? Well, actually, it's in 1 John chapter 4 that the churches are instructed to do the very thing that they're doing. And so I just found that interesting that, that John would have this vision where, hey, I remember writing that in my first letter back on, on chapter 4, verse 1. That's where we're going to be reading at today. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever does not know, does, whomever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so what I want to talk to us today, again, as I was talking, as we start to think about the wolves that are out there, we've talked about shepherds, we've talked about wolves, and I've disclosed what I think are some of the most prominent uh, false teachings and false teachers and, and, and false gospels that are prevalent in our society today. Well, sometimes just being aware of their presence isn't enough. We have to figure out how to protect ourselves from those from those wolves, from those dangers out there. And so the last two sermons are going to be our silver, silver bullet sermons. Um, 
kind of going along with my little intro today of how to protect ourselves from wolves. First thing that I want to tell you is that God gives us a number of protections. God was aware that there were going to be wolves out there. And, and, and the first line of protection we have is our shepherds. Uh, that's why we, that's what we covered first. And if you don't remember that, if you want to go back and listen to that, finding a trustworthy shepherd, finding a trustworthy under shepherd who's going to tell you the good and the bad and all of it, the, the honey and the vinegar, who's going to encourage, but also reprove and rebuke and exhort and all those things is, is, is key to our protection in this world and identifying who is a good shepherd that can have uh, a voice in your life is one of the very first protections God afforded us. And it is their duty to protect the flock, as we talked about in those sermons. Today, though, I want to take time to look at a, a second protection that the Lord's given us, and that is the Spirit Himself. The Holy Spirit of God is part of our protective services. In that passage we read in John, if you're there in John chapter 4, if you'll just look back just a little bit, actually the last verse of John, of 1 John chapter 3, the, the previous chapter, it says, uh, so he's telling, he starts off in John 4, First John 4 telling us to, to uh, test the spirits, but it ends, that's based on this idea in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, whoever keeps the commands abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. And so the presence of the Spirit in our lives is key to us testing the spirits that we'll listen to in the world. The presence of the Spirit in our life, Him being in us, that God's given us the Spirit, is a protection so that when He commands us, now go out and test these other spirits that you hear, test these other prophets to make sure they're of God. The Spirit is key and fundamental into us protecting ourselves from false teachings. That we have him there, that he's there to lead us into all truth. He's there to help us remember the things that we've heard and read in the scriptures. He's there to enlighten us when we study the scriptures, that the spirit is key to our protection. But the problem I think most of us have when it comes to the spirit, and we kind of in theory go, okay, I get that and grateful for that, is, is what I want to encourage us to do is trust the spirit. Trust the spirit that is in you. Shelley recently had a conversation with someone um, that I believe it was at work or in somewhere in her, her, in her daily life, but she had a conversation with a person who I'm pretty sure has been exposed to some wolfish teachings in our area. And, and, and this person was talking with Shelly, and they were, they were talking about how they had these concerns about what they had been hearing. They had some concerns about what they had been seeing, and, it, it, and there was something inside that just didn't settle right, and they couldn't quite figure it out. Uh, things weren't, weren't at peace there, and they, they, they just something was off with what they had been hearing in the presence of this false teaching. And I think we often have that kind of stuff, but then we can just kind of like, eh, that's probably just my imagination. Uh, I'm probably making a big deal out of nothing. Uh, you know, that guy's got an education. That guy, you know, he's got a great testimony. That guy, you know, look at all these other people that are just nodding right along with it. It's probably me. 
It's probably me, you know, and, and what I want to encourage you is it's probably not you. That when you have something unsettling, and whether it comes from me or anybody else, if you have something unsettling in your life, something that you go like, that just didn't sound right. That didn't just feel right. That wasn't, wasn't, that doesn't line up with what I believe. You need to trust that. You need to trust that the Spirit is there talking to you and working with you and trying to protect you. He might be trying to alert you to something, or he might be trying to teach you something. You know, he might be saying, well, you need to pay attention to this and he is right and you need to get that right in your life. Or he might be saying, no, that's something you don't need to listen to. You need to be protected, but you need to at least trust the spirit enough to listen, to contemplate, to think about this could be something from God. The Bible tells us the spirit is here in our lives to direct us and protect us and convict us and guide us into all truth. And if you believe you have him and you're sitting in error, he should be throwing up red flags all over the place. And don't be too quick to dismiss that because that is one of the gifts God has given us. His inviting, indwelling spirit in our lives. And we have to learn to trust it. We have to learn to trust it by asking questions. Why am I not settled? What is it that I've heard that's not made me settled? What is it that's going on? Try to identify, ask questions. Why is something stirring within me? I may, you may not be able to get your finger on it completely. You may not be able to milk it down to, oh, now I understand it. But start asking questions. Start doing research. Start your, do your own due diligence. The Spirit has stirred me up for some reason. I need to, need to talk to somebody. I need to read something. I need to go back to that verse and check it out again. And, and I need to understand better. The Spirit will be there to help you find it. The Bible says those who seek will find. It says if you lack wisdom, pray to God who will give graciously to us. And so if there's a stirring within our heart, the Spirit number one job or one of his number one jobs is to help us answer those questions help us to figure out and find peace in our lives and to find and determine wrong teaching from right teaching seek guidance back to that shepherd <laughs> find you a trustworthy shepherd find you another person who says hey this is what i'm hearing this is what i'm struggling with pray for wisdom the bible tells us to do that and finally figure out what actions you have to take be willing to be led by the Spirit. What I have found in my life is that as I've learned to trust and hear the Spirit in my life and react to the Spirit in my life, I learn to hear Him better, trust Him more, and react to Him better. It's a practice. The more you listen, the more you hear His voice, the more you react to that, the clearer and the more He will explain things, or maybe the better we will hear Him and understand how to react to Him. But just avoid some of the mistakes that, that trust the spirit in, in us more than we trust the people in front of us. Just because someone has a large congregation doesn't mean they're to be trusted. Just because somebody's on TV, as we all are now, doesn't mean they should be trusted. Just because somebody's charismatic, and I'm not talking about the spiritual gifts, I'm talking about they have a really big personality and you know, have this giant charisma and stage presence, doesn't mean they're to be trusted. Just because they're educated and they got degrees and letters behind their name, in front of their names, and all the way around their names, doesn't mean they're to be trusted. But the Bible calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. You know what that means? He can be trusted. <laughs> and we need to trust Him more and more and learn how to do that. 
So one of our first protections is just to trust the spirit that he's given to us, to, to react to that in whatever kind of way we need to. Secondly, we're told in that passage in 1 John 4 to test the spirits. That's what, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So once we learn to trust the spirit of the Holy Spirit, we need to learn how to test those spirits in which we hear. Uh, we hear. And that's kind of what I want to walk through today. I'm, I'm hoping these sermons this week and next week are going to be super practical, uh, just on some real how to do some things. Um, I'm hoping that gets to you. And so today we're going to, this is the command from 1 John, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So how do you do that? How do you test a spirit? <laughs> And so I, I want to give you some, some at least three steps kind of to think about as you think about testing a spirit. First, number one, first step to testing any spirit is to recognize that there's a spirit behind every teaching and preaching. When a person gets up into a public setting and they're trying to tell you about God, all right, they're trying to impart information about a supernatural being to you, that's a spiritual thing. And so there's a spirit behind it always. Now that can be a good spirit or a bad spirit. What, what we have to recognize is that there is something supernatural and real going on in the preaching, teaching aspect. I have a friend of mine uh, who we have this kind of little banter back and forth he usually compliments me on my speeches, how good a speech I give. And I'm like, yeah, some people might call it a sermon. And we just kind of joke with each other that, that there is a difference between getting up and giving a speech in front of whatever congregation or group of people you want to and giving a sermon. And I would draw that line that sermons are spiritual, speeches, well, those are speeches, right? So there's something spiritual going on in this moment, and we need to recognize that. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, if you have your sermon notes, if you picked up one of those, I've, I've written out all the references today. If you're taking notes, I'll try to re remind you of these. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 tells us, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might stand against the schemes of the devil." We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our fight is not with the false teachers who are giving out false gospels. Our fight, the real fight, is with the spirit that's behind those false teachings and those false gospels. And we need to recognize, we need to just realize we're dealing with supernatural things. We, we too easily just leave it as this is a worldly thing. This is, you know, this is what we pay him for. He gets up there and gives a sermon and we all feel good about it. And we, you know, pat ourselves on the back and be in church. No, we are exposing ourselves when we come to a church to spiritual influences. Let me say that again. When you come to a church... Whatever church it is, or wherever you listen to a church, if you do it online, whoever you listen to, when you give a person, uh, a preacher, teacher, whatever you want to call them, prophet, whatever, you give them ear, when you listen to them, you're allowing spiritual influence into your life. 
maybe this will make it a little bit more important to you to understand. Back when I was a kid, I used to go to my grandfather's house in the summer, and they had this closet with all the old toys that my mom and uncles played with, and they had this big board where you slid checkers around. You could play checkers, you could play Chinese checkers, you could play little pool games. Well, one day I was in this room where all they were, and I found a game that my mom played when she was a kid. I think she played. I don't know who it belonged to. We won't, we won't, we, all right, I'll throw my mom under the bus enough today. Let's, it was one of my uncles, obviously. It was a Ouija board. Ooh. And I remember back in a time when, you know, and I was like, what is this? We don't mess with that. We're not going to expose ourselves and open the door where any kind of demon can come into your life. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The, that messing around with things of the occult would just be, we thought that these were exposing ourselves to supernatural forces that we didn't want to expose ourselves to. Trust me, when you go to a church, you're doing the exact same thing. If it's good teaching, you're exposing yourself to good spiritual forces. If it's bad teaching and heretical teaching and false teaching, you're exposing yourself to evil spirits. And so we need to just, first of all, grasp the reality of when we come to these things, when we give people the ear, when we give them our ear and we say, we'll listen to their teaching, there's a spirit behind that teaching and you're inviting that spirit to be part of your life for good or for bad. And, and you, that should be serious. Like, I don't expect any of you guys to be running home this afternoon, breaking out your wheezy boards, starting to play with them. But if you entertain bad teaching, well, you'd probably be better off with the Ouija board. Just to be honest. That there's a spiritual thing going on in these moments. And we need to recognize that and take that very, very seriously. You should ask yourself regularly this question. What spirit... Am I giving access to my life by sitting in this place or tuning in to this person? If you can't identify clearly the spirit of the living God that proclaims Jesus as the only Savior, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, <laughs> then you might not want to listen to that teaching. So that's the first thing. We just got to recognize the immense importance of who we listen to and how it affects our lives beyond just the physical realm in which we live. So once we recognize that, the second step to testing a spirit is engage. Engage your mind. Do not put it on autopilot. Don't show up, tune in, listen to, download a podcast or whatever, and just let it run and go, well, I'm just listening. But engage your mind, engage your thinking. In, in, in verse 4 of, of 1 John there, it says, little children, you are from God. You have overcome the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Verse 5, they are from the world, they, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this you'll know through your spirit. And so there's this idea, it's the, the you there. There's, there's two ways we use you in our world. There's you, singular, and there's you, collectively. As I say it, y'all. As you guys say it, you-ins. Y'all makes more sense, let's just be honest. You all, right? I don't know what the ends is from you ends. What? 
You ones. That's where it comes from. Well, see, I learned something today. So we could say that longhand. You ones. There's a, there's, a, there's a singular you and there's a collective you. And what John is pointing out in this thing, when he says you, you uh, little children, you are from God. He's not talking about a singular one. He's talking about a collective you. A you all. A you ones. And, and it's what, what I want to point out is that there's a collectiveness to our protection. That the Spirit brings a group of people together and is within the group that we find the most protection. We call them congregations. We call them flocks to go along with the illustration that God uses. And so we need to learn to trust and engage with one another. We need to hear from one another. We need to trust one another. We need to respect one another. And we need to have the backing of one another. What he goes on in verse 5 and 6 say, you know, says, if, if you listen to us, if you listen to the apostles, the us is collected too. If, if the church would listen to the apostles, to the teachings of the apostles, then they're going to know the will of God. And those who don't listen to that don't belong to God. My whole point is, as we engage, we don't put it on autopilot. We don't listen to what's being said, but uh, that we do listen to what's being said, that we pay full attention to the things and we listen very carefully. And we don't just because that guy's got an edge, I'm just going to soak it in. I'm just going to take it in. I can't do what he does but actually take the time to think for ourselves and then put some of our faith in our collective groups. That's why we do things like we have credentials. We have pastors who are ordained. We have pastors who have education. We have pastors who are licensed and we have sermons. We have moments where we lay on hands. We do things as collective to put our stamp on people and so if somebody doesn't have a collective backing from a church that we trust, they probably shouldn't be listened to. That's one of the reasons why Jared, just so you, so you know, Jared's all dressed up today. Because at the close of our service today, we're going to have an installation service for Jared. to installate, Just to install him at our church. To pull down, have him down front, to lay our hands on him, to pray for him. As a credentialing, sir. As a recognition that we recognize this man teaches a gospel that we have faith in. And that we collectively back what he teaches. And so that gives him voice in the public squares. This is somebody you should listen to. Why? Because we all together have said we recognize what's going on there. We believe in this teaching. And this is a teaching you should listen to. Jude chapter 3 said, Beloved, uh, Jude chapter 1 verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about your common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once and for all was delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were uh, disintegrated for their condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master, Jesus Christ. Again, Jude is writing a book about false prophets. He said, contend for the faith, you all, that, that we collectively fight for the faith, that we engage in what we hear and we put forward people who present a true gospel, that we have this collective presence. We even think about Hebrews chapter 12, since you have this great cloud of witnesses. And so that we need one another and we need to be engaged together in making sure that there's a pure gospel presented. And that those people we stand behind, we stand behind because they present good news. And so when it comes to engaging, this is one thing that we've been saying over and over. We just have to pay close attention. 
And I hope by now you've learned some of the things to pay attention to. <laughs> you know, pay, pay attention to what's being said as much as what's not being said also. And the third thing we can do to test the Spirit. First, recognize the Spirit. Two, to, to, put our, uh, to engage our minds, engage our spirits, engage with one another. And third, formulate biblical metrics. This is how you gauge a teaching. First, I'm going to give you five quick biblical metrics. And our biblical metrics number are, we'll give you three biblical metrics. First, the first biblical metric is the core of a message is on the divinity of Jesus. This should be the core of every gospel presentation, that Jesus is divine. All right. Five ways to flesh this out quickly. The divinity of Jesus tells us that Jesus is God. And I put the word eternally there, meaning Jesus has always been God. He wasn't created. He's always existed as God. And so when we talk about the divinity of Jesus being the core of our message, it should be a message that all teaches there, Jesus has always been there. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. So Jesus has to be the core. And His divinity is the core of that teaching. 1 John 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in John 1.14, which I'll read in just a minute, it identifies who it's talking about when it says the word and it identifies that as Jesus. I want to show you a screenshot I took with my camera this week. I was looking at another Bible on, on my computer and I found this Bible. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. Is there a difference? Now look at yours in your hands. It says the word was God with a capital G. And this version says was a God with a lowercase g. Two letters changed. <clears throat> really? Drop an A and make it a little g instead of a big G. Does that make a difference? Well, you better bet you it does. You better believe it does. And if we don't pay careful attention, if we don't really look at what we're reading and what's being taught to us, just a simple change of a letter here and there makes a world of difference. This comes from a Bible that's used by a, a group that I would call a cult that will talk about Jesus all day long. They will talk about Jesus being the Son of God. They will talk about Jesus being a miracle worker. They will talk about Jesus more than you and I will talk about Jesus. But they believe Jesus was a created being, the brother of Lucifer, who became a God and ruled over a planet just like the rest of us are going to do. That one day you too will be Jesus to another world and you'll get to rule that place. That's a false doctrine. It's a false gospel. And if you don't pay careful attention to what people say about the divinity and the eternal divinity of Jesus, you can get sucked down a road that sounds very Christian. People who would claim themselves to be Christian. But the gospel is not truly biblical because it denies the ultimate eternal divinity of Jesus as God. Secondly, 
Jesus is only God. Probably should have said the only God or the only way to God. It's a term of exclusivity that when we look at Jesus, Jesus is exclusive. Acts chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men which, by which men must be saved. We believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. That when we make him the core, he's the only way to salvation. This is what makes us evangelicals. Third, Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is not somebody else. He is and will always be Jesus. And you may remember it, I told you to a guy who said, who said Jesus is the only way. I just don't know how Jesus presents himself to people. He might present himself as Buddha. He might present himself as Muhammad. He might present himself as Confucius. He might present himself as, I, I don't know what disguise Jesus takes on when he wants to present himself. Well, Matthew 24, uh, 30, uh, 23 through 26, the, then if anyone says, look, here is the Christ, and there he is, don't believe it. The, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, if, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he's in the, the inner rooms, do not believe it. We must understand, Jesus is going to present himself as Jesus. He's not going to present himself as somebody else. And we don't need to be chasing false prophets and false Jesuses and false Christ all around the countryside because he did something amazing and got a big crowd. We need to be able to discern, is it Jesus? And does it claim to be Jesus, the eternal son of God? If it's something different, it's not Jesus in disguise. Jesus was incarnate. Again, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our tagline, growing together in grace and truth. Growing together in Jesus. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And he came and lived among us. I think John probably writes this. And he's talking about that in 1 John 4, where he says, anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, he's addressing one of the very earliest heresies that attacked the church, one of the very first false teachings that attacked the church called Gnosticism. And Gnostics believe that the human body was evil and that having a body, a material body, that was evil. And the great, the great thing we were trying to do is to one day die and get rid of this evil thing called a body. The only problem I have with that is who made the body? God did. And God don't make nothing evil. And so God intended us to have a body and the spirit in one. And so that, that, so, so what the Gnostics taught was that Jesus never actually came and was truly incarnate, didn't truly live in human flesh. It was just an illusion. It just appeared like he was here, but he really wasn't here in flesh. And John's reacting to that early heresy by talking. Anyone who denies the incarnation is a false god, is a false teacher, is a false prophet. That's what he's particularly addressing in 1 John chapter 4. But we need to understand that's the same thing today, that, that God intended Jesus to be one of us, that he understood us, that he was incarnate. He was just like you and I and still is. And that body of his, resurrected as it is and different as it is, is sitting in heaven waiting for the rest of us 
to get their body and soul at some point too. And so that's the whole idea of the closing and the bodily resurrection of the saints. And so anyone who denies that is denying the, the divinity of Jesus and the true incarnation. And finally, Jesus is the authority. When we just sit down, have you ever asked yourself this question? I would encourage you to do this one day and just kind of as a practice. Why do you care what Jesus said? I mean, why do we give one iota about his teachings, about his commands? Well, it's because we think he was God. If you, if you understand that God, he was God eternally, that he's the only God and the only way to God, that he is Jesus himself, and that he was incarnate in dwelling human flesh, then you might want to listen to what he says. If you deny all that, then there's no reason to listen to him. It's the who he is that makes us care about what he says more than anything, and not just because he was a good guy. There's lots of good guys with good teachings out there that I don't listen to because I don't think they were God himself. Matthew 7, 24. And so is Jesus your authority? Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus closes out the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he basically says, whoever does what I say, whoever listens to my commands, you're the wise man who built your house on the rock. If you hear what I preach and you don't do it, if you don't let me be your authority, then you're a foolish person building your house on sand. And so giving Jesus the authority is the core. So, so when you hear a message, it should be heavy on Jesus, heavy on him eternally being God, heavy on him being the only way to God, heavy on him to presenting himself, that only Jesus and Jesus alone, that he was incarnate and he ultimately has authority over us all because of who he was. So this is the first metric that should be the, what you hold up every sermon to. Second, teaching, the teaching should be on living a divine life. By that means, you, those of us who have given our life to Christ, our job is to live out the divine life. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Divinity has come and become part of our life. And it should manifest itself in our living Galatians 2.20 makes it plain. I have been crucified with Christ. It is, I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is the instruction, one of the metrics we should have, is is it Christian instruction? The word Christian means little Christ. It was a term that they developed in the first century to make fun of people who followed Jesus. Oh, you're one of those little Christs. You're a Christian. You're trying to be like Christ, right? Yes. And the instruction we get should be on how to be like Christ, not how to live your best life now. Not how to get the most out of the world, but how to be like Christ. Romans chapter 8 tells us if you set your mind on the flesh, you're going to live with the flesh. If you set your mind on the spirit, you're going to live out as the spirit. My question and one of the metrics you can use when you listen to teaching, is this teaching me how to live as a Christian, how to live as a little Christ, how to follow Jesus, or is this teaching me how to live in the world? Now, those two things should combine, but it should be how to live as a Christian in this world and not just how to get along in the world or get the most out of the world, but how to change the world by your presence as a Christian. 
And what we understand is that, the, that heaven's economy is upside down and backwards from everything we believe. That, that the Christian teaching is, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to save your life, give it up. If you want to be blessed, give it away. If, deny yourself to make other people more important than you. Live differently than everybody else in the world who thinks of themselves first. Is it, is it teaching and how to live the divine life? And finally, as you test the spirits that you hear, core on the divinity of Jesus, teaching that is solid on how to live as a Christian, divine life that, is, that we're supposed to live in this world. And finally, there should be a heavy reliance on divine instruction or divine truth might be the better way to say that. That is the scriptures. That's what John says in verse 4. He says, if, if you listen to us. Well, how do we listen to John? How do we listen to Peter and Paul? How do we listen to the apostles today? It's through the word of God. This particular thing is so important that it's going to get a sermon all of its own next week. As we practically look at how to take the divine instruction, the divine truth that God's given us, and make sure we apply that well to our lives. Because those are the protection God has given us in the Spirit. These are metrics to use as we listen to those spirits. When you sit down to hear people preach, is Jesus the core? Is the teaching about how to deny myself and live as Christ did in this world? And is it heavily reliant on divine truth and not human interpretation or human opinion especially? We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. At this point, we want to take a moment to recognize Jared, to put our collective stamp on his life, to, to publicly let people know, if you listen to the teaching of this man, then we think you're probably going to get some good teaching. It's going to be on the core of Jesus. It's going to be on his divinity. It's going to be how to live as a Christian, and it's going to be based on the Bible. I want to just tell you a story before I call Jared forward, how we kind of got to where we're at today. Several years ago, Jarrett was home while he was still serving in Zambia, uh, along with Lou, and was just kind of presenting himself um, to us, catching us up with all that he was doing and was going on. It was at that moment that I felt, I believe it was spirit-led, connection with Jarrett, that I recognized within him that God had his hand on his life. And that I wanted to encourage him to do more. We, we had a connection at the time. We still talk about how, how I felt and how that was and how all that came to be. And so I felt this connection with Jared. But this was years ago. Never knew or thought that he would end up being here serving together. But I had often wondered what God was up to. Unexpectedly, uh, not too long ago, we had the opportunity to uh, bring him uh, on board as we were in a time of transition. You, the congregation, has affirmed that calling on Jared by calling him here to serve with us. And, and our partnership is growing, and I'm grateful to know him and excited about what the Lord's going to be doing through him. Today, we know much of what we think we want Jared to do, but I have a sneaking suspicion that God has got ideas that we've never thought of. And so in the few, in the months and years and however long God tarries, we will see what he will do with Jared's life and his service to him, first of all, and his service to us, second of all. So what I'd like to do is ask Jared to come forward, stand before you. You stand down there. I'm going to read to you an ancient passage. 
the encouragement to another young pastor from his mentor. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having their itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This time I'm going to ask the elders to come down at first to lay hands on Jared. We're going to have a time of just praying for him. In this moment, we want to affirm uh, our recognition of God's hand on Jared's life. We want to give him our collective credentials, our collective backing as a trustworthy representative of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to dedicate ourselves to the support of Jared, to prayer for Jared, and for uh, following him as a leader in this congregation. And we want to ask God's blessings and guidance on his life. I'll also invite anyone else who wants to come. You are welcome to join us as we lay hands on Jared. If you want to just stand and raise your hand and put it forward, you can do it from your seat. But we will invite anyone who would like to join them down. You're welcome to come and also pray with Jared this morning. Randy's going to come up and say our prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, we the people at First Baptist would like to lift up Jared to you, asking your blessing upon him. Father, we ask that you would remind him and motivate him to walk closely with you. We pray, Father, that you would give him wisdom, spiritual discernment. We pray that you would give him a diligence in the word that he would regularly be found studying and scouring through scripture. We pray, Father, that his ministry would not be one of drudgery, but rather that it would be joyful and exciting. I pray, Father, that he would regularly seek good counsel, other pastors, his elders, people that he trusts, and his wife, Father, that he would uh, Know that you speak through her for the family and for his ministry. And we also pray for Lou, too, that as Jared ministers, that it puts a strain and a burden on the spouse at times. So we pray that you would remember Lou. Pray that Jared would be found in a church praying for him regularly. So, Father, I pray that you would motivate all of us to regularly lift Jared up, as well as Jason, in our prayers because they have uh, an important ministry to do in serving you. We pray, Father, for Jared's relationship with you, that it continues to grow and get so close to you that he clearly recognizes your voice. We pray, Father, that you give him a heart for young people, that he has one now we've recognized that. We, we, we pray that you would cause that to even grow and that he would pour his life out 
on our youth and children. In times when he teaches and fills in the pulpit and preaches, we pray that you would cause him to be diligent and take that very serious, that he would work hard in his preparation. I pray that he would always humble himself before you and ask for your help in whatever he does. We pray that he would grow in his love for Jesus, that he would grow in his love for the people of this church and this community. We pray that the people's love for him would grow over time more and more. And we pray that he would recognize that there's power in Jesus Christ, his Lord. So, Father, our prayer is that you would help him to do whatever it is that you have in mind for him in his call here at First Baptist. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.